Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Oil's not well. A Saskatchewan cabinet minister tells us his province will defy Ottawa if it has to and plans to stop collecting carbon taxes on natural gas unless the federal government gives his province the same break it's giving others. Stopping the cycle. After a woman and three children are killed in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, the city declares intimate partner violence an epidemic. One advocate tells us the issue needs more attention and more resources. More than a number. Billy Brackett was killed in last week's shooting in Maine. Tonight, his niece tells us she doesn't want the world to forget the kind family man who loved the Red Sox. Funeral crashers. Authorities arrest several women at the burial of a teenage girl who died after an alleged encounter with Iran's morality police, including a prominent lawyer and human rights activist. Still wattles run deep. When scientists put a rooster in front of a mirror, they conclude the birds are actually much smarter than most people give them credit for because they can recognize their own reflections. And oddly specific scientific information about animals part two, researchers have determined that cats can make 276 unique facial expressions using various combinations of ear positioning, eye narrowing, and lip parting. As it happens, the Tuesday edition radio that's playing an elaborate game of cat and mouth. Ottawa says there will be no more concessions on its carbon pricing. The Liberal government is facing demands from several provinces for more exemptions after lifting the levy on home heating oil, which mainly benefits people in Atlantic Canada. Premiers in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario and B.C. have objected, with some lobbying accusations of a two-tiered system. Here's what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said to reporters when asked about further exemptions. There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution. This is designed to phase out home heating oil the way we made a decision to phase out coal. Now, when we decided to phase out coal as a country, um, there were provinces that had long gone from coal that didn't help them at all that we were phasing out coal because they'd already done it. Others needed to step uh, step up to do it. This is specifically about ending the use of home heating oil, which is more polluting, more expensive, and impacts low-income Canadians to a greater degree. Prime Minister Trudeau being scrummed by reporters before question period today. Saskatchewan has vowed to stop collecting carbon fees on natural gas unless Ottawa bends. Dustin Duncan is the minister responsible for the province's crown corporation, Sask Energy. We reached him in Regina. Minister Duncan, you heard the prime minister there. He said absolutely no more exemptions. How do you respond? 
Well, I think it's disappointing, certainly for the people of Saskatchewan, that we're hoping that a similar exemption would be provided to natural gas. Uh, that certainly is the the greatest uh, source of uh, home heating fuel for Saskatchewan. It's natural gas. We believe that this is uh, a matter of fairness. Um, while we believe that the carbon tax was not the right public policy uh, for Canada, and we disagreed with the federal government, at least up until now it had been applied evenly across the country. And so it's disappointing uh, to hear that the Prime Minister... Uh, seems to be closing the door on any further exemptions. Premier Scott Moe, your Premier, has said himself that, that not collecting the carbon fee on natural gas is likely illegal. So why are you willing to take that step in that case? Well, again, we think this is about fairness for people across the country, including Saskatchewanians, who are not unlike people in eastern Canada facing affordability challenges as well as uh, facing uh, likely another cold winter coming up. And so if uh, it's uh, uh, deemed to be by the Prime Minister fair uh, or fine to eliminate the carbon tax for a short period of time uh, on uh, one source of heating fuel uh, for some people in this country, it should be fair to extend that to everyone right across the country. Premier Mo has been very clear on that. So we're just looking to be treated fairly, uh, just like the people uh, in Atlantic Canada. Are you concerned that, that people at Sask Energy could face fines or even jail time? Certainly, we are looking at uh, legal remedies of our own that would indemnify the officers and the board. We certainly don't want to put them in uh, in legal jeopardy because of a decision um, first taken by the prime minister and then subsequently a decision that likely will be taken by the provincial government. And so we will be looking at our legal remedies as well. The other part of what the prime minister you heard saying there and the federal government has said it's making this concession because home heating oil is more expensive and and more of a pollutant than natural gas and it wants to give people in need a break so they can switch to free home heating pumps. Doesn't each region have its own distinct needs? Exactly, and that's why we initially opposed the carbon tax and the implementation of a carbon tax at a national level, because it didn't uh, take into account the different needs of the different regions of the country. Part of the argument uh, that the Prime Minister has made is that we need a price signal on pollution, uh, and yet in this case for a, a, a heating fuel, um, home heating fuel, uh, oil in this case for Atlantic Canada, uh, which is a higher greenhouse gas emitting uh, fuel, instead of raising uh, that price signal, which is what this was all about to begin with when the carbon tax was put into place. He's now eliminated it for the next three years. So he's really undercut the argument in terms of why the carbon tax was put in place. And the Supreme Court itself, when they ruled, frankly, against Saskatchewan in our opposition to a national price on carbon, a national carbon tax, uh, was that the Supreme Court ruled that uh, the Canada's fight against climate change, that it would make essentially a national plan inoperable if one part of the country could opt out of the carbon tax. It essentially would negate the work that was done in other parts of the country. And the Prime Minister has undercut that argument as well by now, for the next three years, removing the carbon tax on a source of fuel. If you think this is not about what the Prime Minister said in that clip, it is about, why do you think they're doing this if it's not to help people who need it to make that switch? Well, one of his federal ministers was quite clear late last week um, when basically she said that uh, if other parts of the country want an exemption, that they need to vote for more federal liberal members of parliament uh, and indicated that uh, the federal liberal uh, caucus members from Atlantic Canada were very vociferous in their opposition or in their at least asking for relief for their own constituents. Uh, you know, I think, frankly, his own minister said the, the quiet part out loud and indicated that this is really just a political decision to 
take political heat away um, on an issue that has been very challenging for his government and his and for his members of parliament. You mentioned your loss at the Supreme Court and Saskatchewan's long opposition to the carbon tax. So is this really about this particular concession or is this your province, your premier and you seeing an opening to take another run at this plan? No, I, I don't. I hope it doesn't come to that. I think what we're all all we're really asking for is fairness in the application of the exemption that's been given to one part of the country that really isn't applicable for the rest of the country, including Saskatchewan. We're looking for fairness. We're looking for that relief that some in some part of the uh, country is receiving. Uh, you know, we've been fairly clear that the up until now, um, while we disagreed with the carbon tax as a policy position. We didn't think it was the right position for the country, certainly not for Saskatchewan. But uh, until now, uh, we had been abiding by it because it was being fairly implemented in, in all of Canada. Uh, the Prime Minister has changed that. We think that's not fair. Frankly, this is a problem of Justin Trudeau's making in the last uh, week, um, and we're hoping that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau can now fix it and make it fair for all of us. Do you think there's a window for him to to change his mind, to back down? In that clip, he seemed pr- pretty adamant. So I'm wondering how many times do you think you can go back and forth and around and around? Well, I don't know. I, I think, you know, certainly we're hoping that he will change his mind and uh, and really see this as a part of, um, I think, addressing not only affordability for people in Atlantic Canada, but uh, for the rest of the country. This isn't just a Saskatchewan issue. I think it's uh, affecting everybody across the country. And so we're really just looking for that fairness. Um, we've indicated that if that doesn't come to fruition, that uh, we would stop collecting the carbon tax by January 1st. So, you know, we're obviously a couple of months away from that time. Uh, and we're hoping that uh, uh, the federal government and the prime minister will uh, will reconsider. Again, uh, up until um, less than a week ago, this wasn't an issue. We were collecting the carbon tax. We were remitting the carbon tax. We've paid more than $500 million in the carbon tax from Sask Energy customers uh, since 2019. So this has not been an issue up until this point. Up until a week ago, or less than a week ago now, this was not an issue. The Prime Minister has uh, has made it a problem. It's a problem of, of, of Justin Trudeau's making, and so now it's up to uh, the Prime Minister to fix this. Minister Duncan, thank you for your time. Thank you. Dustin Duncan is Saskatchewan's Minister in Charge of Sask Energy. He's in Regina. The deaf and hard-of-hearing community in Maine is in mourning. Four members of that community, Billy Brackett, Brian McFarlane, Joshua Seal, and Steve Vozella, were killed in last week's mass shooting in Lewiston. They were at Shemengi's Bar and Grill restaurant for a cornhole tournament when the gunman entered and opened fire. The gunman also killed 14 other people that day. Billy Brackett was 48. Kelly Medello is his niece. We reached her in Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly, I know that, that a lot of your family lives in Lewiston, you're far from them, but as as life starts to get back to normal there, how is that feeling for them? How are they doing right now? Uh, as good as to be expected, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, of course, it's still a shock, just trying to pick up the pieces and trying to make sure that my uncle is remembered in the best way possible, um, planning services, memorials, um, and then just trying to make a life now without him, um, especially for his daughter, Sandra, 
his wife, Christina, just really taking it day by day. How old is his daughter? His daughter is two and a half. She'll be three Mm -hmm. in February. I mentioned you're far away. You're in Atlanta. How are you holding up? Um, it's been rough. I have good days and bad days. There are days where I'm angry and wish, you know, I could have done something to prevent this. And there are days where I can't get out of bed. I'm crying, especially the first couple of days after it happened. I mean, I don't think I left my bed. I had the news on, didn't sleep. It was, it was hard. It was something I never expected to go through or be a part of. Let's talk a little bit more about the person that you're remembering, your Uncle Billy. And that night, that bar was a pretty big part of his life, as as mm-hmm. were the people there. Um, just tell us why he loved going there. So my uncle was a part of the deaf community, mm-hmm. and he was an avid dart player, cornhole player, loved being around his friends. I mean, ever since I can remember as a kid and and visiting him, darts was a a big part of his life. Cornhole was. So he would go spend time with his friends and he loved it. It was his second family. I was reading that cornhole in the deaf community in particular is this point of connection. Why did it become that? Do you know? I think it was a way for him to be a part of a community. Mm -hmm. He was able to be a part of this big family and and be accepted for who he is. And he loved being around people that understood him and that were able to talk with him. He's one of four people in the deaf community in Maine who were were killed. So this is particularly difficult for people there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The deaf community has been impacted tremendously. But I will say this, they've rallied together. They've supported each other like no other. On their Facebook pages, so many of the members are doing fundraisers, memorial events, etc. But they're grieving just like the families because in that deaf community, they are a family. So this has been a major impact to them. What do you want us to know about your relationship with your Uncle Billy? My uncle is absolutely amazing. Um, he helped me bridge the communication gap between myself and my daughter this is something I can never repay him for. I still <clears throat> get choked up talking about it. He gave me a voice. He always checked up on myself and my family. He wanted to make sure Evelyn, my daughter, was doing well. My uncle is someone I looked up to. He took his deafness as a different ability and not a disability. And with that mindset, I took that mindset with my daughter. Her autism is not a disability, but a different ability. And he gave me that positive outlook. He gave me that voice. And that's something I could just never repay him for. You he were, was amazing. You were able to use sign language to communicate. You asked him to help Correct. you, right? Yes. Um, he taught me different small commands. I wasn't fluid in it by any means, but it was still something where if my daughter needed something, food, drink, bathroom, mom, dad, she was able to sign and I could at least tend to her needs and help her. You're going to be going to Maine uh, this weekend to remember and honor your uncle, Billy. What do you want our listeners to um, remember about him? My- 
My uncle was amazing, and I'm sure that everybody says that about their family members, but my uncle was kind, he was caring, he was a family man. Christina and Sandra made my uncle the happiest person, and if anything, I want to thank Christina for making my uncle so happy. Mm -hmm. He loved playing with his deaf community, whether it was cornhole, darts, hunting, and I want people to know my uncle for the man that he is. I don't want my uncle just to be remembered as a statistic for another mass shooting or just another name. He also loved the Red Sox, I hear. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. After his wife and Big daughter, fan. I'm sure. And maybe after Cornhole. <laughs> yes, that was, that was a second. <laughs> is there a story? Um, you know, you mentioned your connection over your daughter, certainly, and how he helped you. But is there a, a story that you'll be remembering over the weekend? Um. I- I want people to know how how giving he is, so I'll definitely bring up the story with my daughter and then how we visited him. We would be going outside, my middle brother and I, and he would be playing softball with us, catch any type of sport. Like He would actually go outside and play with us. I do remember there was a year that he gave me a Lion King Simba stuffed animal, so... I'm hoping that I can find something like that to give to his daughter this weekend just because it has that sentimental value to me. Mm-hmm. And it's something I feel like I could pass on to her. Well, Kelly, thank you for being so generous with your time and your stories. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Kelly Modello is the niece of Billy Brackett, one of the 18 victims of last week's shooting in Lewiston, Maine. We reached her in Atlanta, Georgia. might have the notion that roosters are thoughtless, brainless jerks who do not understand or care how much you need to sleep in. If so, you might want to sell your chicken farm. Or maybe you have memories of Foghorn Leghorn, the blowhard Looney Tunes rooster outwitted by a chick time and time again stored in your mind. No, 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 you're doing it all wrong. You're digging there and you know the worm is over here. Well, a new study suggests roosters are not as dumb as you and, frankly, many scientists might think. Inga Thiemann of the University of Bonn is in Neuss, Germany. Inga, why do you think chickens, that, why do they have this reputation that they're not so bright? Uh, I guess that it's due to the lacking facial expressions of chickens. We are almost very used to mammalian communication, but in chickens it's a bit difficult, so you really have to get to know chickens uh, in order to understand their emotions. They've just been misunderstood all this time. Obviously, well, um, I think those people who are really keeping chickens in their backyard, they know how smart they are, um, but this is not the vast majority of people. So a lot of people just totally underestimate the cognitive abilities of chickens, and this is what we showed in the study. So this this mirror test is a traditional test for animal awareness. How does it usually work? Um, Usually, you stick a mark or paint a mark um, at the head, for example, at the forehead, and then it's thought that when you present a mirror, 
the animals touch the mark as it is something strange on their body. They recognize their face and realize that something strange. They recognize themselves, right. They recognize themselves and their body in the mirror. You can also do that with infants and the infant or other animals do not touch the mark on the mirror, but touch the mark on their self. So they understand that the mirror just reflects their own body. So how did the chickens respond? How did they do? Well, they they obviously don't have hands to touch. Um, <laughs> so we uh, <laughs> we mark them just underneath the head between the rattles where they cannot see themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, this is has also been done for corvids and magpies, for example. And then the animal, um, when they see the reflection, is thought that they try to get rid of the mark. Um, but we didn't see a real good um, answer of the animal. Right. So then you said, well, okay, we've got we've to tweak this test a little bit. And you came up with one more suited to roosters. So what did you do? Yeah, we really thought about how to test in a situation that makes sense to react in a certain way. So... Um, roosters warm their hands when they see a predator, especially an aerial predator. They warn their um, friends. They warn their friends. They warn also their hands. Um, it's thought that they take the risk of being caught by the predator because they, you know, they, they're making noise when there's a predator, so that's a risky behavior. Mm-hmm. But they gain the investment into the next generation when they save their hands because they are taking care of the offspring. And they do not take this risk and do not emit the alarm call when they are on their own. And this is a situation we used in a different mirror audience test. And so are roosters self-aware? Well, (laughs) uh, this is always very difficult to to pronounce in science. So the, the results that we gained in this mirror audience test give us a hint or a link to the self-awareness of the animal. Mm-hmm. So the rooster do call and emit calls when there's a second bird behind the um, the wire mesh, but they do not so um, when there is a mirror behind the wire mesh. And this is um, um, where we thought that this indicates that the, the rooster understand that it's himself in the mirror instead of another animal. It could also be that they are just really looking at the mirror and seeing something really strange. Um, <laughs> but it seems to us that they show a self-awareness. Yeah, because they're they're seeing themselves. They know it's not a threat. They're there on their own. Um, that's what your uh, research is leading towards. But what about for hens? Do you think, do you think they would have the same kind of self-awareness? Well, also some hens do emit alarm calls, but it's only the hen, the highest in the hierarchy. Um, so the test, as we did it with the rooster, does not work with the hens perfectly fine. So we might have to think about it uh, to, to find a way to test also the hens. But we would also say that it's a cognitive ability of the species. And the most of the roosters uh, did show a behavior that yeah, we kind of expected, but we also were happy and very excited about. Were you proud of them in that moment too? <laughs> oh, of course. We were. You know, when you're a scientist and a researcher, and you want to research something, of course you have these. Uh, in German, we call it schnapps idee. So it's uh, an idea that just comes up between a couple of researchers, and this is um, 
with the other um, researchers on the papers, and then we kind of find out a way how to to tackle it. So, and and then if the paradigm works, yeah, of course you, you can. You know, you're making jumps. Tell me that German word one more time. Oh, schnapps idee. You know schnapps? Yes. It's a very uh, hard alcohol. Yes. And uh, I've heard of it. <laughs> Uh, and it's an idea. So we, in German, we call it schnapps idea. It's just an idea out of the blue when people are talking to each other, maybe having a drink, although I don't drink alcohol, so <laughs> obviously it works also. Um, but uh, yeah, in German, we call it schnapps idee, and um, this is the nice part of science, I have to admit. Adding it to my everyday lexicon, schnapps idee. Uh, Inga, thank <laughs> yeah. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me a call from Canada. Take care. Bye-bye. Inga Thiemann is an animal welfare scientist at the University of Bonn. She is in Neuss, Germany. First, there was shock and grief. Now there are calls to action. Last night, city councillors in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, unanimously voted to declare intimate partner violence an epidemic. Last week, a gunman killed a woman and three children in the community before turning the gun on himself. Among those who supported the declaration is Women in Crisis Algoma. Kelly O'Donnell is the organization's director of program and staff. We reached her in Sault Ste. Marie. Kelly, what was your reaction in those moments? When, when this motion passed last night at City Hall? Um, I would have to say that I was feeling relieved that finally um, people in positions of power uh, recognize that IPV is a, a problem in our community and uh, there is an effort to move this forward um, to the provincial government um, Mm -hmm. in the motion that passed last night was also a piece where uh, Mayor Shoemaker will draft a letter to the Ontario government and Premier Doug Ford to write a letter, Mm -hmm. draft a letter to reconsider this. I'll get to the provincial part of it in just a moment, but you mentioned Mayor Shoemaker. He was a guest on our program, um, you know, when news news of the, the murders first emerged. Uh, and we talked about concerns about intimate partner violence and how there can often be taboos uh, in communities talking about it. And I wonder what you've seen on that front and how you've seen that change. Um, well, I have to say that seeing uh, Mr. Sweeney and Mr. Jennings speak, um, they are bringing a light uh, to this issue. These are um, people who lost loved ones. They are the uh, yeah mm. uh, people who have lost loved ones to IPV. Um, women's organizations such as ours have been saying this for years, but now we have the victim's uh, family on board as well, and they are really echoing what we have been saying for years. What did they say to council yesterday? Um, Mr. Sweeney spoke to, um, you know, making some changes to looking at ways to keep... Um, perpetrators of violence incarcerated or 
you know, like contained for 48 hours following an event. Mr. Jennings uh, spoke to how many times there were seven calls to um, his daughter's home, and then he killed her. So if there's seven police calls there, why wasn't something done to help? Why do you think something wasn't done? Uh, Because our justice system's broken. It is truly a catch-and-release system, and Mr. Sweeney spoke to that as well. Um, Women, if they do call the police, uh, the perpetrators are often um, released that same day or within hours, and they're back at the home with them, and they're mad. Mr. Sweeney, you're referring to is Brian Sweeney. Um, He and his wife, Suzanne, are mourning the loss of their daughter, Angie Sweeney, who was killed. This motion was already in progress before the shootings last week, but it was fast-tracked after that. Why is it, in your view, so important, Kelly, that the situation in in Sault Ste. Marie in particular be labeled an epidemic? What might that accomplish? We are losing one woman or child a week to IPV. So when we draw attention to it, hopefully along with that will come funding and programs and changes to justice system to, you know, make it safe for women and children. In this case, police have said that the gunman was involved in in IPV investigations in the past, including just a day before the shooting. When we use that word epidemic, what does that mean? What does that look like in Sault Ste. Marie from your vantage point? It is a problem. It's a social problem. It's a health problem. It's costing us millions and millions as taxpayers to provide services that really, like the health services, the police services, those sorts of things, if we could change things so that women could actually be safe in their homes so that they didn't have to flee to a shelter in order to be safe, if they could stay in their homes, if perpetrators were just removed and, you know, kept in custody or had a some sort of protective factor there so that the women can just go on with their lives and not be afraid all the time. Last year, as you likely know, a coroner's inquest looking at the deaths of three women in Renfrew County Mm -hmm. also called uh, on the provincial government in Ontario to declare gender-based violence an epidemic. The federal government has characterized it as such. 60-plus communities in Ontario have done the same. But Ontario's provincial government has rejected that idea. Why do you think that is? I believe that from their explanation, um, they have been caught up on the word epidemic, saying that it's not a, a contagious disease. But epidemic, I think, can mean a variety of things, and it is really out of control, and women are dying at the hands of partners. And I think we need to label it what it is. Um, We're losing a woman a week in Ontario. That's way too many. If you were speaking directly to MPPs in Ontario or to Premier Doug Ford, what would you want them to know about intimate partner violence? and why something more needs to be done in your view? I would want um, Doug Ford to know that we need adequate funding to help women flee abuse and violence. We need the laws to change so that perpetrators are not released. We need to not be shaming and blaming victims. We need to draw awareness to this IPVs and realize that it is a socio 
economic problem that knows no race, no class, no uh, religion, that it affects everyone. Kelly, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Kelly O'Donnell is with Women in Crisis Algoma, which offers support services and emergency shelter to victims of domestic violence. She's in Sault Ste. Marie. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Long before he was a Nova Scotia MLA known as the Honorable Tony Ince, he lived through a Manitoba winter with no regular roof over his head. Last night during a debate in the legislature, Mr. Ince shared his story of homelessness. He's criticized a proposed law that would give the province more control over housing development in the Halifax municipality. Mr. Ince says the law will allow the province to ignore the voice of historically marginalized communities in the city. Here's part of Tony Ince's speech last night for the record. I'm going to speak to something personally, something that I don't talk about much. Mick Speaker, I was one of those people one time in my life, in the 80s, living in Winnipeg, was sleeping in bathrooms, was sleeping in bus shelters, nine months out in the streets. I can relate to what some of those folks are dealing with. How many in here can relate to that? So it is really shameful that we who are sitting here, who are privileged, because I'm a privileged person now, can snicker, smile when we're talking about pieces of legislation that really affect those individuals without a home. You have no idea, many of you, what it's like to be out there in the middle of winter without a home and you have to hide and find many places to try to put your head down to sleep. The strange thing about that was I was still had a job. I'm in the bathrooms washing up and cleaning up and getting ready for work. I was selling suits then at that time, which wasn't a lot of money. And individuals looking at me, giving me a second look, like, what are you doing here? And yet, we can sit here for the last year at least and go back and forth about who is responsible for housing and where people should live in dignity. Speaker. It is an issue that affects all levels of government, and we should all be at the table discussing this. And I think back to my time being on the streets in one of the coldest 
provinces in the, in the country in the middle of winter and if it were not for a few two individuals that step forward to try to give me a hand up that looked back and reached and gave me a hand up two strangers I don't think I'd be here today they saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at that time you have no idea the effects that it has on you in your psyche when you're out there and you're homeless and you're trying your best you're still a human being you still deserve a roof over your head you deserve the dignity to have a home and the food on your table and the ability to be a participant in society. For the record, that was Nova Scotia MLA Tony Ince speaking in the provincial legislature last night. Nasreen Sotudeh has seen the inside of a prison cell before. Now the Iranian lawyer and human rights activist is behind bars again, and her family is worried about her well-being. Authorities arrested Ms. Sotudeh at the funeral of a teenage girl who died after an alleged violent encounter on the subway with Iran's morality police. Iranian authorities dispute that description of the incident, which comes just a year after the death of Masa Amini, who also died after an encounter with police. She was arrested for allegedly violating Iran's strict dress code for women. Shaparak Shajarizadeh is an Iranian human rights activist who lives in Canada. We reached her in Richmond Hill, Ontario. Shaparak, I know you've been in touch with, with Nasrin's husband. What did he tell you about how she's doing right now? The news, uh, like, is not good. Um, Nasrin was beaten up during arrest along with some other women uh, in uh, Armita Gravan's uh, funeral. Like, uh, even they broke uh, her glasses. And uh, Nasrin um, right now is on hunger strike to protest against, like, uh, the beating and the way that uh, the violence they were facing during uh, arrest. They were in Vozara Detention Center. Uh, you know that place, the, the place that Masa Amini was killed. Um, uh, they were in jail um, there. Um, and then they uh, sent all um, the women who were arrested uh, to Karchak prison, which is a prison for females. Why would they, authorities make arrests at a funeral? Why would they target a funeral? You know the, about the uprising in Iran since uh, last year, mm-hmm. and basically um, it was uh, based on uh, women's rights and the violence against women. And Armita um, also was killed yes. for uh, not wearing hijab. So the funeral itself was like a threat for, for the government. They don't want to have uh, like uprising um, like they had with Massa 
that's one reason. And uh, the second reason is that, uh, like many of the women who attended the funeral, they were protesting by not wearing hijab. Nasrin was one of them. They didn't want, uh, like, famous people attend the funeral. Mm-hmm. They are, like, um, so afraid of... Um, it, it's a critical time for the government in Iran. Um, as you know, women, women are in front line fighting for human rights and for fighting for freedom. So having famous people, someone like Nasrin, is like a like a big threat for the government. She is famous, as you've said, very well known, seen as a hero by many. And I know she means a lot to you as well, Nasrin does. You were imprisoned in Iran yourself. She was your lawyer. What does she mean to you? She was always my uh, role model from uh, like way before I got arrested. The first time that I saw Nasrin was the time that I was I was protesting against compulsory hijab. And because of the threats, many threats that I got, um, before I got arrested, I um, met Nasreen. And uh, the moment that I saw her, I was in tears because she was my role model. But during the time that I was arrested in jail, she was my rock. I was on hunger strike both time. I was weak. I was scared. You have no idea how evil these people are. She would give me, like, confidence and, uh, like, strength. You have no idea how strong this woman, how brave this woman is. Where does she get that strength? I, 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 I don't know. She's, she's so brave. Uh, like, there was a time that I asked her to leave Iran because uh, uh, she got sick, uh, like, during the time that uh, she was in prison. Mm-hmm. She has heart problem and she wouldn't she's so brave she know that she can fight better uh, like uh, inside Iran not like us she did she she didn't decide to leave she she has decided to stay and fight for her beliefs those those health problems you mentioned she was released from prison a year and a half ago because of those issues. How concerned are you about her health now? Mm, like we are all uh, very uh, like worried uh, because she has heart problem. And uh, even right now, she she didn't uh, like, uh, they didn't release her. She was on uh, medical leave. So the right now the news is uh, that she's going to uh, like serve uh, continue to serving uh, the sentence that she got from the, uh, from her arrest in 2018, and um, and they said uh, Nasrin and other women are going to face uh, new charges uh, because uh, because they were uh, unveiled. They they didn't have any hijab uh, from the beginning in the funeral. Mm-hmm. And also, they they refused to uh, wear her job during the time that they were in jail and during the interrogation. Uh, they refused to cover their head, so they're uh, they're facing new charges. But right now, uh, for Nasrin, is that she's serving uh, the rest of the sentence? How long is that sentence? Like uh, the sentence that she got uh, for her arrest in 2018 was uh, 38 uh, and a half years. 
Uh, but uh, sh- uh, like the minimum uh, is uh, 12 years, if I'm not mistaken. If you could get a message to her now, what would you want her to? What would you want to say to her? Uh, she, I know that she's not just um, like my role model, and um, I, I'm sure that she knows how much I'm worried about her, and I want her to be safe. And uh, I just want, uh, like, uh, I, 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 I don't know. Just uh, I want her to be free, and she knows how much I respect her and how much I love her. Shaparak, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Shaparak Shajarizadeh is an Iranian human rights activist living in Canada. She's in Richmond Hill, Ontario. Ryan Smolkin really loved gravy, so much that he was willing to try it on almost anything. This is my favorite. This is pickled herring. I can tell that. Boom, like that. I'm one of the few people that actually love pickled herring. And I have to admit, I'm skeptical. Favorite gravy. It's funny. I'm actually scared of this one, even though I love both. So I'm going to give it a fair shot. I'm going to take a scoop. This isn't just one-offs here. Let's give it a fair shot. Three, three, at least three pieces of herring. And our gravy, actually, there's actually nothing wrong with that. That is actually good. If anything, if you think pickled herring is too strong, add our gravy, pour it on your pickled herring. I guarantee you'll love it because that takes the strength away. This makes it just like a pickled herring light. Put it that way. It's good. Smokes Poutinery founder Ryan Smolkin trying his gravy on pickled herring for his YouTube series, Will It Gravy? Mr. Smolkin died yesterday of complications from surgery. He was 50 years old. He started Smokes Poutinery in 2009, ladling his gravy over heaps of poutine with reflux-inducing names like chicken bacon ranch, Philly cheesesteak, and avalanche. His single location in downtown Toronto soon expanded to 100 locations all across Canada, serving up late-night snacks until 4 a.m. Mark Cunningham is the president of Smokes Poutinery and Ryan Smolkin's successor. We reached him in Ajax, Ontario. Mark, Ryan sounds like a guy who was up for adventure always in more ways than one. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. Uh, Thank you for letting me listen to that. Uh, I, I am laughing, too, and I could hear you laughing. And then you could we could hear him laughing too. Is that is that you know the, just that's just a moment you you've known him for a long time obviously is is that a moment that it enca- encapsulates who he was to you? Yeah, there's lots of moments, but that sure is the top of the list. Just uh, just who he was as an individual, who he was as a, a founder, and we called him our CEO, but he was our chief entertainment <laughs> officer, and he lived and breathed that. Uh, uh, roll roll every day uh, uh, with his red and black uh, plaid and uh, uh, taking the poutine love, as he said it, uh, <laughs> around the world. What was he like off camera as as a friend, a colleague, a boss? 
Yeah, obviously more than a friend, mm-hmm. more more than a boss, more than a colleague. Um, his big heart um, uh, knew as much as you wanted to tell about yourself and and remembered your family, your your mom, your dad, your your kids, uh, your wife, uh, and and they were always part of the conversation. Uh, would give you that high five or that fist pump or. Uh, you know, that hug, if you felt that uh, you just needed a hug. So he loved people, clearly. He did. Big heart. He also loved poutine and, and gravy. But yeah. beyond loving it, I mean, what did he tell you about why he decided to make it the center of his life and this business? Well, I, I think he was a branding genius, and you'll hear that uh, in menu tributes that uh, uh, we've received from him. Uh, uh, he, he always said, uh, "We're not. Uh, we're more than fries, cheese, and gr- gravy. We're more than poutine. We're an inter- entertainment company that's selling food, poutine." And he took that to heart every day. And uh, uh, you know, he, he didn't dispute that uh, poutine was uh, started in the, the mid '50s in Quebec. But the poutinery that he was uh, delivering was everything that we're putting on top of it from our double smoked bacon to our chipotle pulled pork to our chicken bacon ranch uh, to our chicken inferno it was everything that we were putting on top of that poutine and packaging it together with the the branding the entertainment the 80s glam rock uh, videos and music the uh, the red and black uh, checkered plaid and and even smoke himself who uh, feed, has been feeding ryan all his poutine knowledge over the years and uh, now, hopefully, he will continue to pass that knowledge on to me, too. Yeah, who's Smoke? Uh, Smoke is the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, <laughs> Ryan is only the person that uh, uh, he speaks to, and uh, I'm, I'm waiting for that late-night reach-out soon to take over, hopefully, that communication from Smoke. He, he really took that, uh, that nostalgia and the Canadiana of Putin, yes. as it was, you know, originally, and built it, as you said, and brought all these crazy flavors, uh, toppings. And do you have a favorite? I'm a, uh, I'm a traditional guy, uh, but if I had to jump out to uh, something, it's probably a chicken bacon ranch, which actually came from one of our uh, uh, franchisees in the, in the U.S. too. So that's the other unique thing. Not only was he creating what was going on top of it, he was letting each of our franchisees uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, build local uh, store specials, the local restaurant specials, and uh, you know they, if they were good and sold well, they they became part of the menu. Veggie Deluxe is pretty good too. I can, yes, it is. I can tell you're a fan. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> oh, really? You could tell. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, our. We, they're not customers through ours. Uh, they're fans. How did Ryan feel about being a Canadian business success story? Um, a lot of mixed emotions. You never like to be the center of the conversation. He did like to, uh, you know, get uh, an opportunity to support from the, the back room if he could. Um, you know, big believer in, in giving back to, uh, you know, he's been on the board and a big part of uh, the We Care, uh, which is um, a charity arm that uh, brings disabled children to summer camps through Easter Seals. So, yeah. He started the uh, CEO uh, Eat Off Challenge along with our World Poutine Eating Championship. Yeah. Uh, We've covered that on the ago. program. Yeah, a yeah, number of years ago and giving back. And 
uh, being at the summer camp with the kids and, uh, you know, would uh, tap me in the shoulders occasionally and say, we're, we're bringing the poutine truck to the camp this year again, uh, do whatever needed. And he'd love to see those smiles of the kids uh, getting a chance to have some poutine at camp. I'm sorry, you've lost your friend, Mark, um, well, someone yeah. who, who was more than a friend to you, as you've said. How do you think he'd want to be remembered? I think he just would like to be remembered as Ryan Smokin, uh, you know, and if it was something positive, uh, that interaction or experience or even that poutine you had in one of our restaurants, he, you know, if, if, if he if he got a smile uh, when um, if, if the person got a smile just thinking about him, he, he would be very happy with that. And I think that's all he would ever expect to uh uh, to build around his legacy and uh, his memory. Mark, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for the reach out and uh, hope hopefully we'll be in touch soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Mark Cunningham is the president of Smokes Poutinery. He's in Ajax, Ontario. Coastal erosion is hardly a new phenomenon for Prince Edward Islanders. It's the reason the University of PEI's Coastal Monitoring Research Project exists. It's run by the university's School of Climate Change and Adaptation, and for years, researchers there have used drones and carefully placed pegs to survey damage to the island's shoreline. But according to newly released numbers, what they're seeing in the wake of last year's post-tropical storm Fiona is unprecedented, and for Catherine Kennedy, unsettling. Ms. Kennedy is a master's student at UPEI in Charlottetown. That's where we reached her. Catherine, I was looking at the images that the school has released, those aerial shots. There's kind of a, to my eyes at least, a harsh beauty to them. But I wonder when you're standing there looking at it face to face, what do you see? Yeah, it's um, it's certainly shocking when we go out to these places that we have been monitoring year to year and see such a, a large loss, um, especially following just one weather event. Typically, uh, when we go out and monitor, we are only seeing, you know, 30, 40 centimeters and, and only a handful of times it would lose, you know, a meter plus. But to go out this year and, and see that it's lost upwards of 20 meters in some places, it's been quite a, a shock to see. You've you've been using these these monitoring pegs as part of the the research for this coastal monitoring mm-hmm. project. So just tell us how how you how that works and how you've been measuring the erosion. So uh, our project at UPEI with the pegs started in 2014, um, and it's grown to about 120 plus sites now. Um, so what we do is we have two sets. So there's one that's uh, hammered into the ground. It's a piece of rebar with a metal cap on it. And it's set 10 meters back from the coastline. And then there's another one set a further 10 meters behind that. And that's our directional aid. Um, and then we take the measurement from the front 10 meter one to the coastline every single year. And that's how we uh, get an average uh, loss from that project. The storm blew some of those pegs away, though, didn't it? Yeah, in a few locations where we've had several meters of loss, um, we have lost a few of those pegs. You experienced the storm firsthand. Uh, 
But but were you surprised by the depth of the damage? Yeah, I mean, um, during that night, hearing the, the loud wind outside, we certainly knew it was a strong storm. But the next morning when we started hearing reports of cottages that had been washed away, it, it really kind of hit us just how severe it was. And, and then we started, you know, thinking about what we could be seeing when we go out. And I think it was a bit worse than, than what I was imagining, just, you know, how widespread those impacts were. Does the does the aerial perspective, that drone footage that I was referring to, the images from that footage that I've seen, what does that add to, to your perspective? Uh, I think, you know, a number of these uh, areas that we monitor are also private property. So mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, for the property owners, they, they've, they are experiencing it. But for uh, other individuals, it paints a bit of a picture of just um, how vulnerable uh, we were in the face of that storm. And uh, it's valuable for us to, to monitor and moving forward. Um, but for the general public, I think it's also uh, an important thing to see, mm-hmm. um, even though it's very hard to, to yeah. see. The, part of the research is is not just the taking the measurements and the pegs, as you've said, but also talking to people who who live there. So, what kinds of things have have they been telling you from from their vantage point? Yeah, a lot of um, property owners are also sharing the same sentiment that the, you know this is the worst that they've seen um, and the worst that they've experienced on, on their property. Um, but you know, there are a number of areas that have uh, lost a lot of land over time. But this. Uh, certainly came as the most significant in, in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So we really need to think about how we are going to move forward from this and increase the island's resilience. You know, when we talk about protection and, and hard armory, it, that's more of a temporary solution. And we need to think about what we can do to adapt. And, and that could mean limiting development in some of these higher hazard areas and uh, approaching it with a more nature-based solution for people's uh, private properties. So encouraging planting of, uh, you know, uh, native plants mm-hmm. uh, instead of some of these harder uh, solutions. What do you mean by hard armory? Just let's let's dig into that for, for our listeners. So hard armory is um, typically you'll see uh, large uh, piles of rocks. It could be uh, construction debris sometimes used. It's those breakwaters you can mm-hmm. see. And those are used to mitigate uh, coastal erosion. So, again, it's a temporary solution that will slow that erosion down. Um, But it can have some negative impacts. Uh, It can reduce the beach width and and obstruct some of that critical habitat. So, you know, we really see it as it should be prioritized just for those critical infrastructure areas, like places that have bridges or wharves. Some people are very interested in this more nature-based solution approach. And I think as we move forward with more uh, coastal zone policies and land use policies, these will have to be considerations. Yeah. What are some of those more natural options? Uh, so typically they get referred to as living shorelines, and there's been a few demonstrations of that here on the island. And they often use uh, logs, uh, hay, planting, marram grass, or bayberry. Um, you can use recycled Christmas trees. And, you know, we've uh, often talked with these property owners again about those more nature-based mm-hmm. approaches, and a lot of them were really receptive and interested in, in what they could be doing for their property. And, you know, our biggest message to them is uh, not mowing right to the edge of their lawn and, and keeping that kind of buffer zone area vegetated with the natural vegetation. And a number of them are doing a really great job with that. So it's, it's been encouraging. Given the, given the research you're doing, uh you know, climate change, I, I assume, was, was certainly something that you're concerned and passionate about. But how does this work? How does what has happened with Fiona change that? 
I think uh, Fiona has really shown us just how severe these extreme weather events can be. And with climate change, these events are going to increase and increase in severity. So it's really showing us that we need to be focusing on what um, these impacts could be in the future. And I think we'll be analyzing these impacts for years to come, really. Catherine, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine Kennedy is a master's student at the University of PEI's School of Climate Change and Adaptation. We reached her in Charlottetown. Now it's time for the quarterly As It Happens Cat Quiz. Can you find your way blind when you're lost in the street? Do you know how to go to the heavy side of the air? Because Jellicles can and Jellicles do. Jellicles do and Jellicles can. Jellicles can and Jellicles do. Jellicles do and Jellicles can. Jellicles can and Jellicles do. A little bit of Jellicle songs for Jellicle cats from the musical Cats to get us in the mood. Now, question one, what is Jellicle? Why do they say it so much? I, 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 sorry, this, this is not part of the quiz. I just, I just find the word Jellicle very upsetting. Anyway, back to the quiz. Can you find your way No, we, we, we do not need to hear it again. Sorry, I didn't mean to raise my voice. <laughs> now, question one, how many facial expressions does a cat have? Time's up. Now, when I asked around the office before the show, most people guessed that cats had two facial expressions, asleep and awake. Someone else added a third, judgmental. But the real answer is 276. That's according to a new study published in the journal Behavioral Processes after a year of painstaking research spent observing 50 cats at a cat cafe in Los Angeles. Apparently, cats make 26 unique facial movements, including nose licks, blinks, half blinks, lip partings, and ear positionings. Each of the 276 observed facial expressions combines about four of those 26 movements. 45% of the expressions were unmistakably friendly. 37% were unmistakably aggressive. And the remaining 18% of cat facial expressions were ambiguous, Not 100% like most people believe. This really suggests we should be paying closer attention to our cats' faces because it's the only way we know how they're feeling. After all, they can't talk. The cats got their tongues. I know that makes no sense. It's still better than Jellicle. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.